for all that you're doing. Thank you for the word of God. And we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that you will bless your word tonight. Lord, help us to absorb and understand and assimilate what the Spirit of God gave to Paul for the church of Jesus Christ. In your name, we pray. Amen. Tell your neighbor it's going to be good tonight. And Tyler, I have no clicker. All righty. Okay. Um, while Tyler's getting the clicker, I'm just going to lean on Judy. Can we do that, Judy? Okay. Everybody say with me, God has a plan. Now, when we say that, we really, really, really don't understand the, the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of God's incredible plan. He really has a massive plan. Now, and that's one of the things that Paul goes into in the book of Ephesians, a great plan for the church. And so let's go, to the, let's go ahead and move on. Last time we looked at one of Paul's favorite phrases, and what was it? In Christ. Everybody say with me, I'm in Christ. If indeed you are in Christ. For, thank you so much, David. Let me try it. Okay, we're good. Now, um, the Bible says in Romans, any man who has not the Spirit is not his. So, if we have the Spirit and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you by coming to Christ as your Savior, when you say, Jesus, forgive me, I turn to you in faith to cover my sins, to forgive me, and I believe you are the Savior of the world, and I place my faith in you to redeem me, then the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. Now, for that person, you are instantly taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You go from one kingdom to another. So you went from death to life, from lost to found, from blind to sight, and from kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light kingdom of God's dear son. So a, a massive miracle happens, an incredible transition, transference happens. And so now that we're in the kingdom of God, we're in Christ. And so I, if I'm remembering right, in 14 verses, he says it 11 times, in him, in him, in him, in him. We are in him. So clearly the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that. So, we are placed in him. And I'm repeating, my, there, I already, I know where I'm going. I already said that. So now we also saw that Ephesians deals with the following topics. And I just want to go over them again so that a uh, little bit of summary so you can remember, because uh, this is incredible stuff. Ephesians talks about the greatness of God, that he predetermines things before they ever happen. It talks about the exalted Christ, salvation in the present dimension, salvation in the here and now, how he saves us right here, right now. We are in Christ. It talks about the status of believers in Christ. It talks about the unity of Jew and Gentile, that nobody's better than anybody else at the foot of the cross. We're all equalized at the foot of the cross. Male, female, black, white, yellow, red, brown, blue, pink. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. 
And then in Ephesians 6, you all know about this one, the struggle with satanic powers. And we're going to get into that, of course, in this series, the struggle with principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world and wickedness in heavenly places. Then he talks about the ethical obligations of believers, just practical, everyday, walk-it-out Christianity. Uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, that's Paul. He talks about that. He really talks about the church. The church is a main topic in Ephesians. Uh, and, and the reason we call it, is it up here? It's not up here this time. Who do you think you are? Who do, who do you think you are? The reason we called it Ephesians, who do you think you are? Because Ephesians tell us, tells us who we are in Christ. It matters who you think you are. It matters that we understand that we are in Christ. So you might say that Ephesians has a lot to do with helping us with Christian identity. Okay? Now, we're going to jump off the pier and go into some deep water tonight and talk about a word that has caused heated controversy throughout church history. And read it with me. What is the word? Predestination. Oh, that gives some people fits. That word. That is a loaded word. That word is a stick of dynamite, a stick of theological dynamite, because what does it mean, predestination? Now, in chapters 1, 3 through 14, we find many key words that describe the way God purposes, plans, wills, and chooses, watch this, from before the beginning of the world. Now, Ephesians is going to tell us some things that will bend your mind. It's mind-bending stuff. Uh, it tells me some things that I still can't comprehend. I just accept it by faith. Okay? So God purposes, he plans, he wills, and he chooses things, and he did it, according to Paul, before time began. Now, let me, let me tell you this. He saw you tonight in Christ before time began. So, Pastor Jeff, how could, he, how could he do that? Because he's God, and only God can do that. Okay? Only God can do that. Nobody can do that but God. And Ephesians is going to tell us that he saw us in him before time began, before he created the worlds. He saw us in Christ. So when I say God has a plan, we're going to understand tonight when we leave that his plan was bigger than we thought. I've heard people tell me that they don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in predestination. And let me tell you what they mean when they say, I don't believe in predestination. They mean they don't believe that some people are chosen to be saved and some are chosen to be lost. That's what they mean. They're talking about Calvinism, what we would call hardcore Calvinism, that God elects, selects, chooses picks out from the human race certain people to be saved and leaves the rest to be damned. That it is irresistible grace. Those who are predestined to be saved are subject to irresistible grace. If you are one of the, the elect, then there's no way you're not going to be saved because of irresistible grace. You can't resist the grace of God. So 
When you say predestination, it raises the hackles on people. They say, well, if you're talking about some are called to be saved and some are called to be damned, I can't go there with you. How many of you know what I'm talking about here? Okay. How many of you would believe if I told you tonight, I'm not telling you this, but let's just say I did. What if I told you this for the first time? Church, I'm here tonight to tell you that predestination means God picks some people to save and lets the rest go to hell. And those who are chosen to be saved are going to be saved because of irresistible grace. And the rest that aren't chosen have no choice. They're going to perish. And that was my teaching. How many of you would (coughs) choke on that? Yeah. Because I, like God so loved the whole world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, there are very, very good people, very bright people, and people who I listen to on a lot of other stuff who believe that. And I could go there and I could expand on what they teach, but I don't have time and I'm not going to muddy the waters. Let me tell you what I believe. If you believe the Bible, you do believe in in predestination in this respect. You believe in God destining things to happen before they take place in the world. I believe that. I know that. Predestination is in the Bible in black and white. Look at the following verses and the number of times the concept of predestination pops up. Watch this. Chapter uh, 1, verse 1 of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by what? By the will of God. By the will of God. So God predestined that Paul would be an apostle. Look at verse 4. Read it with me. For he chose us in him. Uh Uh-oh. Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So, well, Pastor Jeff, what do you do with that? Because he said he chose us. Watch this now. He, this is what he chose, that anybody who turns to Christ and repents and is saved by his blood, he chose them to be holy and blameless in his sight. Let's look at another one. Verse 5, in love... He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in according with his pleasure and will. Now, there it is again, he predestined. But how do I interpret that? That anybody who comes to Jesus, he predestined that the way in is adoption. And we're going to talk about that more tonight, adoption. And it was his good pleasure and will that those who come to the foot of the cross, having heard the gospel and repent of their sin and turn to him, he predestined that they would be adopted. I don't believe he's saying that certain ones were predestined while others weren't. He's just talking about the results of repentance. He predestined that if if we turn to Christ like I did in juvenile home and you did somewhere in your life, you turn to him, he predestined that right then you would come into his presence via adoption. Now, Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to uh, his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. Verse 11, in whom also we were what? 
chosen, having been predestined according to the plan. Boy, verse 11 is loaded. According to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Oh, you could, you could meditate on verse 11 for a year. That's powerful. You got all the words in there, chosen, predestined, plan, purpose, his will. There you have it. We see that God willed, he chose, he predestined, he purposed, and he planned. And he did all of it according to his good pleasure. So nobody tells God what to do. God's going to do what God wants to do because God is God. Shall the pot say to the potter, what are you doing? Okay. Shall the thing created say to the creator, what have you done? How many of you ever looked in the mirror and wanted to say that to God? What have you done? Okay. I couldn't resist. Now, so God, God is God. And God is sovereign. God is providential. And God is moving in the earth right now. Here's the bottom line. God has a plan that he is bringing to fruition. And you and me, we're, part, we're a part of it right now. We are, we are moving and flowing in God's eternal plan as his children right now. Now, let's look at verse 4 and 5 more closely. These are really, really important. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, when Paul says he chose us in him before the creation of the world, he is not speaking, and I want us to get this tonight, of choosing one person to be saved while another is not chosen. He's speaking about choosing the church. The church is chosen. The word chose is the verb. Now, you, this won't matter to you, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's ek, ek, uh, ek, le, let me look at it. Eklegomai. Eklegomai. Ek means out of. It means to be picked out, to choose out of. Eklegomai. And this is where we get our English word election. Now, here it means to select someone or something for oneself, to make a choice in accordance with significant preference. God picked out, chose out of the world his church. The very word for church in the Greek language supports this idea. The, the, the Greek word is ekklesia. Can we say that together? Ekklesia. Now, notice the ek, out of. And Lysia comes from Lagos, called out, called. And it means called out ones. You know what you are? You're a called out one. And what I like about it is he called us out that he might call us in. He didn't just call us out to be isolated from the world. He called us out of the world to call us into his kingdom. He took us out so he can take us in. He rescued us from so he, can, so he can place us in Christ. So Ecclesia is called out. I'm called out. The church, what's the church? It's called out ones. 
The church is not a country club of do-gooders. That might be a revelation to some of you. It's not a country club of do-gooders. Trust me. It's not an organization that you join. Let's go join the church. A lot of people join churches so they can get better business contacts. Or they can have a better reputation in the community. They have no clue that the only reason you join a church is because it's where God shows you to plant your life because the vision of that house resonates with what God has put in you. But before you join a church with a name, you're already in God's universal ecclesia. Because the minute you got saved, you were called out and placed in Him. Okay? So we're called out of the world by God's grace, and we're called into Jesus Christ. Now, Peter said the very, very same thing. And I quote this a lot. It's one of my favorite passages, 1 Peter 2, 9. He says, you are a what generation? Chosen. Chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, which doesn't mean weird. Peculiar means specially set apart for him. That's what it means. That's just King James English, peculiar. But it means chosen to be in him, with him, set aside for him. Didn't Jesus say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you would go and bring forth fruit and your fruit should remain. So even there, Jesus, out of his own words, in the red ink in your Bible, said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. We go out the day after we got saved and we say, last night I found the Lord. That's wrong. The Lord found you. You wouldn't have even known you were dead in your sins if he hadn't convicted you and drawn you by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So he, you didn't choose me, he said, not first. I chose you, and I ordained you. All of you are ordained to go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. The word chosen here in, in Peter's verse, chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, peculiar people, selected, called out. Um, a people for God's own possession is another meaning for peculiar, a people for God's own possession. Now, commentator Barnes writes this about that verse. You are a chosen generation is in contradistinction from those who, by their disobedience, had rejected the Savior as the foundation of hope. Now, notice what he's saying. This verse is not saying that some were chosen and some weren't. It's in contradistinction. It is comparing. It is, it is saying there are those who came to Christ and repented and were saved and those who didn't repent, so weren't saved. And those who did come to Christ and were saved were added into that generation, that royal priesthood, that holy nation, that people for God's own possession. My favorite illustration is this one. You have a door here. You have a door. One of these great big wooden doors and there's a sign on it. You walk up to it, and there's a sign on it, and it says, whosoever will, let him come. You say, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he rose from the dead. 
I'm lost. I need to be saved. I accept you, Lord. And you open that door and you walk through and you shut it. And lo and behold, on the other side, it says something else. What does it say? I knew you were coming all the time. I knew you were coming. As a matter of fact, God could say to us and did in Ephesians, he said, not only did I know you were coming, I knew you were coming before I said, let there be light. Whoa. Now that will, that will cause you to sit there for a while, won't it? I knew you were coming. I saw you in Christ. I saw you walking through that door before time began. So there you go. Now, the people of God are often represented as his chosen or elected people. The idea is that before time began, God chose that anyone who came to his son for salvation would be added to the ecclesia, the church. Literally a new race of people never before seen on earth. If any man be in Christ, here's what the Greek literally says. If any man be in Christ, he is a new species of being. Never before on earth, the church. Never before seen. Now, the next word in Ephesians 1.5 is predestined, which focuses on the time of the choosing. Verse 4 says chosen. Verse 5 says predestined. Predestined is the timing of the choosing. It comes from a Greek word meaning to decide upon beforehand, to predetermine. When did, God, when did God choose those who turned to his son in repentance for salvation would be added to his ecclesia, his church? When did he do that? When did he, choose, when did he pre-decide that anybody that came to Jesus would be added to his called out ones, his church? When did he decide it? Before the creation of the world. <laughs> I told you Ephesians was deep. Some of you are about to go cross-eyed on me. But this is deep stuff. And I, you know what? I would choke on it if I, didn't believe, if I didn't understand that this was talking about God. Because only God can do this. God says about himself, um, I tell you the way something is going to end before the beginning begins. I know how you're going to end before you even begin. Now, he knows who's going to be lost and who's going to be saved. Of course he knows that. But he doesn't, he does not decree it. He just knows it. Before the creation of the world. It's clear here that the Gentile church is not some accident of history, but part of God's carefully conceived and executed plan begun before the ages, before the world was created, and it came into being through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the church. And what Paul is going to brag about, and you're going to, you'll read Paul bragging about this in many places in the New Testament. He said, God called me to preach to the Gentiles, and that's all of us, I'll, I would wager. Anybody in here, anybody in here a, a 100% Jew naturally? You, Mike, raise your hand. Is that it? Okay, except for Mike, this is all about you. Paul, Paul is going to brag about him. And Paul was a Jew's Jew. Amen. I mean, he was trained by Gamaliel. He, he was 
brilliant. He excelled his peers in Judaism. So if you were to pick up, line up 100 men and Paul was in, amongst them and say, which one of these 100 do you think is going to end up the apostle to the Gentiles? You would have picked Paul last. But God chooses what you don't expect him to choose. And, and I know that because look at me and look at you. Okay? Now, this is, this is powerful. I love this. There, there was no church, dear church, before the appearance of Jesus Christ. There was no church. There were the Jewish people who were also God's chosen. But we don't find the word ecclesia, church, until Jesus spoke it in Matthew 16, 18. And you know what he said. He looked at Peter. After Peter, he had said to the disciples, who, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say Elijah, some say this and that. Well, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, bless his heart, blurted out a revelation from God and said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus lit up and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven showed you that. And then he said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And there's Ecclesia for the first time. Where did the church originate? In the mind of Jesus Christ. There's, it's nowhere else in the Bible till right there. Upon this rock, I will build my called out ones. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the church. Now, Jesus was not saying here, and I want to clarify for all you Catholics. Okay? Jesus was not saying here that he would build his church upon Peter, the man. Jesus did not intend for there to be this Petrine succession. And what I mean by that is the Catholic Church, way back in the, uh, um, oh, around the second, third century, decided that they would, uh, they would elect a pope who they claimed to be the successor of Simon Peter. And they made this man infallible and inerrant and his own ultimate authority. And they taught this teaching on Petrine succession so that every pope that came after that first pope was also Peter's successor. And they based it on this verse. But that is not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about the revelation that came out of Peter's mouth. Upon this rock, what rock? That I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah sent by God to die for you, rise for you, and wash your sins away. I'm the one. Now, I don't want to offend anybody. I hope I didn't. And if I offended you, come up and tell me afterwards, and I'll hug you. Seriously, I don't want to offend you, but I want you to look at this here. That's not what he was saying. He's not going to build his church on a man, especially a man like Simon Peter. I mean, yes, he was called, he was an apostle, but he was what he, who he was by the grace of God. Aside from the grace of God, 
He got into trouble all the time. He's going to build his church on that? No way. He's building his church on the revelation. How many of you got saved by saying, I believe that the Pope is Peter's successor? How many of you got saved and you said, I believe he's the Christ, the son of the living God? That saved you, right? That is, that is what the church is, is built on. Jesus would build his church upon this foundational truth that he was the prophesied of Messiah. Now, every person who places their faith and belief in that truth is added to the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And all of hell cannot defeat those who stand on and build their lives upon that truth. The devil can attack you, hit you, strike you, deceive you, take you down. You can struggle with all kinds of things. But listen, ultimately, he will not win over you. For faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. And he that has begun a good work in you will finish it to the day of Jesus Christ. And that's the truth. So let, let hell roar. On our side is the Lion of Judah. Now, this wonderful transference from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God's dear son happens by way of, say it with me, adoption. Can we say that again? Adoption. Did you know that you're adopted? You're adopted. You're adopted. Look what he says in verse 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, in Paul's day, one could move from the lowest class to the highest class by means of adoption. He could go from one side of the tracks to the other by adoption. A beloved slave could be freed, fancy word, manumitted, freed, and then adopted by a Roman citizen. And when he was adopted by a Roman citizen, he became Roman with all the privileges of Roman. Upon adoption, the slave became a son. And what's the next word? An heir and a citizen. An adopted son now had the same rights and privileges as a naturally born son. Now, Paul had all this in mind when he said, God pre-decided, pre-determined before the world began that the ecclesia, the called out ones, would would be added to the church via adoption. And having been adopted, we get all the rights and privileges of the real, genuine, original son whose name is Jesus. This is the picture Paul has of the believer in Jesus Christ. We, we've been chosen, predestined to come into the kingdom of God by way of adoption. Aren't you so glad he adopted you? And don't you feel loved like you're... You weren't adopted. Once adopted, we have the same rights. Now, please catch this, church. This, this, is, this is some of the richness of Ephesians. Once adopted, we have the same rights, same privileges as a naturally born son. And who is the naturally born son whose privileges we share? Say it with me. Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Can you believe? Can you embrace by faith? That everything Jesus has inherited, he's also going to give to you. Because of this incredible adoption, we've inherited the riches of the kingdom of God as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. 
That's the message of Ephesians. Now, Romans talks about the same thing. And you all know this verse, but I'm going to read it. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, did you? But what did you receive? You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, say it, Abba, Father. How many of you called him Father shortly after you were saved? Yeah, Father God, Father God. Jesus introduced him as Father And once you come to Christ and his blood covers you and his spirit comes to live inside of you, then you are adopted on the spot and he is now officially, legally, forevermore your father, your daddy. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The spirit, I love this, verse 16 of Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Have you got that witness tonight? Have you got that witness tonight? That the Spirit of God bears witness. I remember it so well sitting in juvenile home. And I heard that gospel for the first time. And I went into another room with the preacher and we prayed. And I'll never forget lifting up my head after praying for the first time in my life. In my life. I knew that something had happened inside of me. Oh, it was crystal clear. I don't know how to put words to it, but here's what had happened. The Spirit of God was witnessing to my spirit that I was now a son of God. Oh. And if children, it gets better. If children, then what? Heirs. Heirs of what? Say it with me. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That means everything he's getting, you're going to get. Because you're a joint heir. You're a joint heir. So everything he's going to get, you're going to get. You're in on it. Gravy train. We can't wrap our minds around. You know, what we're going to experience when we finally see him and what we receive is going to so eclipse anything that we ever imagined All we're going to be able to do is is take off whatever crowns he has graciously given us and lay them at his feet and worship him with all of our being because it's going to be so spectacularly, stupendously amazing. Paul says in Ephesians, exceeding abundantly above anything we could ask for or even imagine to ask for. Now, let's read on, starting in verses uh, 7 through 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now, let me tell you about our culture. Our culture doesn't think in terms of redemption. Since we haven't had legal slavery for nearly 150 years. But if you had been in the time of slavery, and you would have understood redemption better. In Paul's day, slavery was the norm among the poor. Many of the early Christians were slaves. And read, you can read Paul addressing them, telling them how to respond to their slave owners in a Christian manner. To them, redemption meant freedom. When they heard the word redemption, they thought free, cut loose, free to walk. That's what redemption meant to them. 
Redemption originally referred to buying back a slave or a captive. It meant to make free by payment of a ransom. In this verse, it means the release from a captive condition, captivity to sin that comes uniquely and only through Christ, that is, freedom from it. Now, folks, let me tell you the truth about humanity. Until you come to Christ, you are anything but free. You are, and you may say, no, I'm not, but yes, you are. The Bible says you are a slave to sin. You have no choice. You must sin because you have no power against it. You have no supernatural power to defeat it. You've got to know the truth to make you free. And he who the Son frees is free indeed. If the Son doesn't free them, they're not free. So until we come to Christ, we are slaves to sin. Once we come to Christ, we're his slave. And I'm happy to be his slave. Because when you're his slave, you're happy. Happy, happy, happy. The the more you submit to him, the happier you are. Okay? So guess what? Here's some good news. All of us are slaves to something. You're either a slave to your sin or you're a slave to Christ. But there is no fence. There's no walking in between. There's no, well, you know, uh, I'll decide down the road and until then, I'm my own man. No, you're not your own man. You're not your own woman. I'm a self-made man. No, you're not. You're a sin-made man. You are being shaped by iniquity. David said, I was born in sin, shaped by iniquity. Until you're freed in Jesus, you're a slave. So we need somebody greater than us and greater than the sin and stronger than the devil to set us free. And there's only one. And his name's not Allah or Muhammad or Buddha or hugging a tree or anything else. It is Jesus. That's why he came, to set us free. Okay? So redeem means set free. Now, it took a high price to buy us back. No worldly currency could do it. His blood. His blood was the only currency that could be offered at the bar of God to wrest us from the hands of Satan and deliver us from sin. Blood. His blood. The Lamb's blood. So I'm always up here. You notice when I preach, I'm always doing this and talking about how Jesus stretched out his arms, his hands, his feet and they nailed him to that tree. I do it all the time. That's why we have a big cross out there. Do it all the time because at that cross, Jesus laid down currency to buy you back. And Satan could do nothing about it. His blood was the ransom price. Blood sacrifice, you know, you know there's people, get this, There are people who are all bound up in political correctness, which I despise, because PC muzzles you from telling the truth. But in our day of PC, some Christians are actually offended by Christ's blood that that was the ransom. They don't like talking about that. Can you believe that? As a matter of fact, blood sacrifice, they say, harkens back to some primitive religion, and we're embarrassed of that. So believe it or not, some hymnals, I'm telling you the truth, have had nearly every hymn 
that mentions the blood of Christ as being the atoning sacrifice for our sins removed. Now, let me tell you, I saw this with my own eyes. When I was uh, once, I wanted to visit some churches to see what other people were experiencing in church. I went to a church that was very liberal. I just wanted to see what they were doing, what they were saying. So I went way up in the balcony, had on my suit, and I'm just watching. Well, they start singing, so I grabbed the hymnal, and I noticed that in the hymnal, every reference to the blood was removed. Saw it with my own eyes. Every reference to Christ being our salvation was removed. I said, what are they doing here? Well, they were being liberal. And then the speaker got up, and instead of quoting the Word of God, quoted Robert Frost, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I, that, you know, anyway, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I, I took the road less traveled by and went off on something there. And then in the message, mocked people, mocked people who thought Jesus was the only way to salvation. And, and everybody there, and it was a full house. It was full. Everybody there laughed right along with him. And I thought, we're in the last days. How tragic. How tragic. Because we wouldn't be here without the blood of Christ. There wouldn't be an America without the blood of Christ. We'd be under some tyrannical dictator in abject darkness if Jesus had never come, if indeed the world was still here. We must always remember that blood sacrifice goes straight back to the Old Testament sacrificial system of a lamb or some other animal being slain for the sins of the people. All the way back to when God took an animal's life and covered Adam and Eve with an animal skin. Blood was shed. So God taught the first family way back then that there was no remission of sins without blood. Now, I know that's bloody. But you know what? It's true. There's no out but the blood. Animal sacrifice for atonement in the Old Testament, for atonement of sin, was God's way of teaching principles of holiness, the high cost of sin, forgiveness, and grace to the early Israelites, so that when Jesus showed up, they would embrace him. Of course, they didn't. Now, in the New Testament, this concept is mentioned repeatedly. I gave you a whole bunch of verses there if you want to look them up on blood sacrifice. Now, if you remove Christ's blood from Christianity, folks, there is no Christianity. His death on the cross was in vain. We're still in our sins, and God's no longer a holy, just God. We have got to take Paul seriously when he says, in him we have redemption, read it with me, through his blood. The forgiveness of sins through his blood. A price has been paid to set us free from the bondage of sin. And that price in Christ's death on the cross and his precious shed blood. All of this happened, says Paul, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Think about that statement, lavished, lavished. When I come home, my little dog, Maxie, Max, my little, my little, listen, I could talk about him the rest of this night. 
Because here's the deal. He, he teaches me all about the way we ought to follow Jesus because he doesn't take his eyes off of me. And when I come home, you would think it was the second coming every time. <laughs> and I pick him up, and he lavishes. Slurp, slurp, slurp. He wags his tail. If I put him down, he jumps back up. He won't let me put him down. He lavishes. I love going home just because of Max's greeting. I know what you're thinking. Where's Kathy? She can't get to me. <laughs> she can't get to me. He's Max. And, and anyway, lavish. Think about lavish. You know what it says to me? God didn't give us just a little bit of grace. We're not barely saved. He didn't love us just enough to squeeze us through the pearly gates. God poured out his grace, say it with me, lavishly, excessively, abundantly. <laughs> the picture we're given is of an overflowing love, surpassing grace, a cherishing by God that is overflowing, superabundant, excessive, and undeserved. Wow. Do I do the next two verses or am I done? Do I have time? Y'all want me to do two more? I, it won't take long. Okay. The next two verses contain the theme of the entire book of Ephesians. Here's the theme. Read it with me. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purchased in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's Ephesians in a nutshell. That's it. This is profound, folks. Paul mentions the mystery of God's will. The word mystery, it's a Greek word, mysterion, mysterion. The word mystery means a revelation of what used to be, was previously hidden, but it's now been disclosed, revealed, unveiled, by God. We get to know things that people leading up to the New Testament wish they knew, wanted to know, but couldn't. It's comprised of those things which the angels desire to look into. Let me tell you something about angels. They don't know everything. They don't know everything. Well, how do you know that? Because of what Peter said. The angels desire to look into the plan of salvation and understand it they had a curiosity about what God was doing by calling out the church. They didn't know. And now they know a lot more. You know how they know? The church told them. This mystery now revealed to us reveals the core of God's plan for the ages. It's the moment towards which history is marching as I speak right now. Here it is. Here's where history is marching. Here's where it's going to end. It is God's purpose and good pleasure to one day unify everything in heaven and on earth under the headship and rule of Jesus Christ. Where is history marching? It's going to end at Jesus. It's not going to end with a socialist or a Marxist or a communist or some evil dictator or some antichrist. That's not where it's going to end. It's going to, it is all racing towards the consummation of all things where Jesus rules the universe and everything in it. That's where it's headed. 
Isaiah said, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government. What will be on his shoulders? The government. And he'll be called mighty, uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The Lord Jesus will one day rule over all things. And how we long for this day. Do you know the prophets were prolific on this? Two quick examples. John the Revelator said, and he, Jesus, will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus is going to be the ruler of the world, and he's not going to be elected. He's going to be appointed. The psalmist penned the powerful words, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Every enemy of Christ is just going to be his footstool. One day all the enemies of Christ and his church will be under him, defeated by him. This paints a powerful picture of Jesus ruling totally triumphant over all things, including the powers of hell. So this is God's plan. The mystery that was hidden until the resurrection of Christ from the dead. No wonder Paul wrote these words, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and earth and even under the earth, yes, Satan and his minions, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to stop there. We'll pick it up next week. Let's stand together, can we? Wasn't that good stuff tonight? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.